Doesn't everyone have a voter ID? You'd be surprised. That's this hour's discussion on the new voter photo ID law. There is considerable confusion over what is an acceptable proof of residence to register to vote, or an acceptable voter photo ID to receive a ballot. The League of Women Voters of Dane County is helping to clarify these areas of confusion to keep citizens from being confused or frustrated, and then deciding not to vote. The panelists are Marion Matthews, special registration deputy with the League, Scott McDonald, Dane County Clerk. And Will Jones, with the NAACP Dane County Executive Committee and co-chair of the Dane County Coalition on Voter Photo ID, he's also a professor of history at UW Madison. This talk took place on October 7, 2015, at the Capital Lakes Retirement Center in Madison. There are handouts at the league's website at lwvdanecounty.org. First, Kathy Fullen, co-chair of the league, introduces the first speaker, Marion Matthews. Marion Matthews worked in special education for the Madison Metropolitan School District for 32 years. For most of her career, she was a program support teacher, providing assistance to teachers, administrators, and families with children with disabilities. Since her retirement in 2006, Marion has trained many volunteers to register voters and has helped to organize voter registration events for the League of Women Voters of Dane County. She also works during elections as a special voting deputy and poll worker for the city of Madison. In recognition of her long service to the community, our league presented her with the Outstanding Voter Service Award in 2015. Marion loves cats, Maine coons especially, and enjoys gardening and traveling. We'd like to welcome Marion. Thank you, Kathy. My goal tonight is to broaden your understanding of voter photo ID and to introduce you to our document, making it clear. But before I get to making it clear, I'd like to、uh, tell you a little bit about my experience and how making it clear came to be.、Uh, in April, I volunteered to be on the league's、uh, voter ID steering committee.、Uh, based on my experiences, I felt that I had something to contribute to the group.、Um, I had some knowledge of、uh, voter registration, proof of residence, and even voter photo ID. A little bit about my experience.、Um, like many of you, I've been an SRD for a number of years, and I've、uh, registered scores of citizens in a lot of different settings.、Uh, Mary Beth Whistlebale has allowed me to conduct training sessions for SRDs, and over the last couple years, I've trained、uh, over 100 people to be SRDs. And in、uh, 2014, when the requirements for proof of residence were expanded, I created with a friend, Myra Schultz, an information pamphlet on proof of residence that Mary Beth now includes in her education ambassador materials. And finally, in 2011-2012, when the league had an EVU grant to help voters get、uh, photo IDs. I participated in a training conducted by Gail Bliss on voter ID, and worked to help several people try to get their、um, IDs at the DMV. So I walked into that first voter ID steering committee, feeling pretty much on top of the issues. Unfortunately, that feeling didn't last very long.
uh, uh, we started talking about IDs and um, getting a free ID at the DMV. And um, as most of you know, you can get a free ID at the DMV, um, but you need to provide documents that uh, prove personal information about yourself in four categories. Your name and date of birth, uh, your US citizenship, your identity, and proof of Wisconsin residency. So uh, going back to that first uh, steering committee meeting, we started talking about getting an ID at the DMV. And someone said, oh, and you can use an insurance policy as proof of residency at the DMV. And I assertively said, well, no, that's incorrect. Because based on my experience, you could not use an insurance policy as proof of residence when you were registering to vote. And it became clear the problem was that a number of documents, like an insurance policy, um, are acceptable as proof of residency at the DMV, but not acceptable when you're registering to vote. And at that point, I have to tell you that I started to feel a little queasy, and I felt like I'm in trouble here because I saw myself as someone who would be able to help people understand voter ID, and I couldn't keep this stuff straight. So at that point, I, I volunteered to develop a, what we called a tool for helpers um, that would address voter ID. And that's how Making It Clear got started. Uh, we had some conversations with the GAB and the DMV to get answers to our questions. And I got some wonderful help and guidance and support from a lot of people, including Kathy Fullen, uh, Paul Malishki, Shirley Heidinger, Gail Bliss, uh, Karen Faster, and my good friend Myra Schultz. So why don't we get to making it clear? Um, making it clear, as I said, is a tool to help those of you who are going to be working with voters around voter ID. It is not a comprehensive encyclopedia that's going to tell you everything you possibly wanted to know about voter ID. If you want more detailed information, I encourage you to go to the GAB and the DMV websites. But our document, Making It Clear, is really intended to address topics that we identified as having the greatest potential for confusion. And there are three topics, and I'll go through those with you very briefly tonight. If you have the document, if you'll go to page two, you'll see table one. And this addresses the uh, first area of potential confusion that we identified. And that is the difference between voter photo ID and proof of residence. Um, let me go through some of the basic differences. Okay, voter photo ID is a single document that proves who you are, that you present in order to get a ballot on election day or to vote absentee. Now compare that to proof of residence for registration, which is a single document that proves where you live and you present it whenever and wherever you register to vote. 
Another basic difference relates to the address on the document. So on a, a photo ID, uh, that document does not need to have uh, an address. And if it does have an address, it doesn't need to be the current address. Compare that to the address on the uh, proof of residence document. That obviously does need to have your current address. OK, so far so good. Now we're going to get to uh, what is probably the cause of a lot of the confusion. If you look on the next page, page three, you'll see that we've listed down the left-hand side the documents that are acceptable as voter photo ID. And you'll notice that some of those documents can also be used as proof of residence for registration. The problem is the requirements vary if you use it for voter ID versus proof of residence. So let's look at just the first row, the, uh, a Wisconsin driver license or state ID. If you're using a driver's license or state ID as an ID, it can be expired since the last election or unexpired. However, if you're using a driver license as a proof of residence for registration, it must always be current and valid. Um, another basic difference between voter photo ID and proof of residence is um, related to the address. I talked about that just a couple minutes ago. So if you're using a, a Wisconsin driver license as, a state, as an ID, it doesn't have to have the current address. However, if you're using your driver's license for proof of residence, it does need to have um, the correct address. So this is really the heart of the problem. That is, you have the same document that is used for two different purposes, but with different requirements. And that is why we put together this table that would serve as sort of a cheat sheet for you um, to help you differentiate the different requirements when you're working with voters. The second area of potential confusion is the varying expiration and issuance dates between um, the different documents that can be used as voter photo ID. Now, state law specifies which documents can be used or, or which documents are acceptable as voter ID. State law also specifies whether the document um, needs to be unexpired or whether the document can be expired when you use it. If it can be expired, state law specifies the earliest acceptable expiration date. If it must be unexpired, state law specifies the earliest acceptable issuance date. And the expiration dates and the issuance dates vary across documents. So I think you can see where, again, there is a chance of a lot of confusion around this issue. So we put together table two. And on table two, again, this is something you can use as a cheat sheet. First of all, we have listed all of the acceptable voter photo ID documents. We've also listed for you the requirements. Can they be expired or must they be unexpired? But then we've taken it one step further. Um, and we have identified for you, um, for each of the acceptable ID documents, the earliest acceptable expiration date 
or the earliest acceptable issuance date for each of those documents for, for each of the four elections that will take place in 2016. So again, this is a cheat sheet for you as you're working with voters to try and keep this information um, clear. And the third topic where we address uh, potential confusion is the differences between um, proof of residence for registration and proof of Wisconsin residency when applying to the DMV for a photo ID. Now, I've covered these definitions a little earlier, but I'll just quickly review them with you. Um, proof of residence for voter registration is a single document that shows where you live and you present it whenever you register to vote. Compare that to proof of Wisconsin residency to obtain an ID at the DMV. Um, this is one of the four areas of personal information that you have to prove about yourself when you go to the DMV to get an ID. Now, the lists of types of documents that can be used for proof of residence for registration versus getting an ID at the DMV, those lists are similar, but unfortunately, they're not identical. And so um, what we've done is on page 6, 7, and 8 in this table 3, we've listed for you the, the types of documents which are similar for proof of residence for registration and proof of uh, Wisconsin residency at the DMV. As I said, they're not, um, there are some slight differences, but they're basically the same. Then on page nine, the last uh, page of this table, we've identified for you first the types of documents that can be used as proof of residence only for voter registration. And then we've identified for you the types of documents that can be used as uh, proof of residence, proof of Wisconsin residency at the DMV to get an ID. Now, many of you are probably asking yourself, as I asked myself as I was researching this, um, why are these two lists different? And I don't have an answer for you. But I do know and I do believe very strongly that it's important that we know that there are these differences and we know what those differences are so that no voter is disenfranchised because they bring the wrong form when they register to vote or the wrong form to the DMV when they want to get an ID. There are two other pages in this document. Um, there's a resources page. Um, this, these are all the resources that we use to create Making It Clear. And Making It Clear is on the League's website. Uh, and if you go to the League's website and go to Making It Clear and go to the resources page, you'll find that the links to our resources, super long links, are all clickable. So you can get to the resources very easily. And the last page shows images of the um, acceptable voter IDs in Wisconsin. So in conclusion, um, our goal 
was to uh, create a tool for league members and others in the community to navigate the um, requirements that are potentially very confusing. And um, I hope that you find this tool useful and helpful as you're working with voters. You're listening to a discussion on voter ID, sponsored by the League of Women Voters of Dane County. Thank you, Marion. We're very pleased that Dane County Clerk Scott McDonnell agreed to talk to us this evening. Scott was born and raised in Maryland before graduating from the University of Wisconsin-Madison. In 1996, he was elected to represent downtown Madison on the Dane County Board. He was county board chair from 2005 to 2013. In 2013, he was elected Dane County Clerk. He is married to Megan McDonald and has two daughters, Eleanor and Annie, who attend Randall Elementary in Madison. The, the problem with, uh, with voter ID not only is it complicated and, and difficult, there's, there's several ancillary problems that, that kind of land on my office. And so you have a lot of, there's several different groups that are disproportionately affected by the voter ID law. Um, for example, uh, and this is a national figure, but 25% of African-American males nationally do not have an ID that they could use a, at a poll to, to vote. As you all know, uh, many seniors don't, wouldn't have a driver's license or it's difficult for them to go to the DMV to get a, uh, an ID card. So um, they may not consider themselves indefinitely confined. And so that's another group that we're concerned about uh, having difficulty voting. When, it come, when we come especially to, to this presidential primary and, and to November. Uh, and there are other groups affected um, to, to greater or lesser degrees. One of the challenges in my office is trying to figure out how do I get a list of those people? So we know that DMV knows who the, has IDs, right? And we know that we have a voter list and we, ha we, can, we can get from commercial vendors, everyone who buys anything in Dane County, you can buy any list you want, right? Uh, but I can't, get the I can't get those two lists and match them against each other, which is what I would like, so that I can contact those folks and tell them that they're not going to be able to vote unless they have an ID. So that has been a challenge. Uh, I, never, I rarely ever say this, but there is hope in the Capitol um, in that there is a, a bill that I'm expecting soon for Wisconsin to join a group called ERIC. And ERIC is a, a, a confederation of states that shares data um, and uh, make sure that, say, someone isn't voting in Chicago and voting absentee in Green at their vacation home in Green Lake. So that data is checked across states. But it also, as part of this group, you have a rigorous uh, schedule of contacting voters when they move to tell them they need to register, how to register. Um, so it's sort of the yin and yang. It's, it worries about uh, voter fraud, but it also aggressively go, um, contacts voters to tell them how to register and, and, and where. So actually that would be a real help uh, statewide. But I wanted to talk about this topic because the third major group, or maybe there's three or four, but one of the major groups, especially in Dane County, that's affected by voter ID are UW students, uh, many of whom vote in this room. One of the acceptable IDs to vote is a student ID as long as it matches, has certain criteria on it. For example, a photo, signature, expiration date, issue date, things like that. So uh, one, of the, one of the issues, and I think everyone here understands it, is that in spring elections, when 
county board is on the ballot, you, you see very few students voting. That changes dramatically when we get to presidential elections. So if we take uh, Ward 55, and this is Porchlight near the business school, in November of 2014, there were only 74 voters and 41 election day registrations, so same day voter registration on those days. But um, just two years before that, there were 2,688 voters and 648 election, or 848 election day registrations. And when I was talking to Mary Beth, who's the Madison City Clerk, basically these numbers are the same for eight downtown wards. So think 1,000 roughly same day voter registrations, 2,500 to 3,000 voters when in a spring election you'll see 50, 60 people. And that'll replicate itself downtown in next November. That's important. So with this, with this change in the law, not only do you have complicated rules to follow that make me think my taxes are easy in comparison, the, um, that has other effects. So you, you, uh, when, when someone comes up to the poll book to be checked in and to get a slip so they can go get a ballot, that they now have to check an ID. And that takes a few minutes. And we had an example in Waukesha for a special election there. Uh, and we could actually document how long it takes. It's twice as long per voter at the poll book. So let's, this is, this is going to affect everybody all, all over the state. But let's just take these eight downtown wards. So you have, uh, not only are you going to have 1,000 people doing same-day voter registration, but when they get to the poll book, that's going to take twice as long. It's not like we don't know this is going to happen and we can't anticipate it. Mary Beth will have more poll workers in these wards. But you can't change the fact that that person checking them in has to check the ID that's in the statute. So it's going to double the time. So how does this nexus with student IDs? As I mentioned, um, the student IDs need to have, if they're going to be used for voting, an issuance date, a photo, a student signature. And there has to be an expiration date at least two years after the issue date. But it can't be more than two years. The UW now has five-year issue date. Madison, I want to say, let me correct myself, UW-Madison, UW-Green Bay, UW-Superior have changed their IDs to conform to the law. And there's, um, say they expire after two years, at least for the purposes of voting. So what does that mean? There are 12 to 16,000 UW students who are out of state. So let's take, and the number's a little hard because Minnesota students are counted as in-state. Um, they're not in-state. So you, uh, you went to Edina High School and you want to vote for president and you're going to UW. This is, this is close to my heart because I'm from Maryland. That's kind of why I put that in my bio. I voted for Dukakis here on campus uh, in 1988. That shows you how old I am. But that was my first election. I, there's no way that I would have voted if this law were in place now. So, it's, so what the UW is proposing, and, and I hope they change their mind, I don't think this is set in stone, but it, this is where it's headed, is that instead of using your ID that you use for everything, buying food at um, commissary, getting into your dorm room, going into class, everything, you use it for everything, right? You have to go get a second ID at Union South just for the purposes of voting. So think about what that student from Edina would have to do. Go to Union South get a special ID, go stand in line, 
for for same day voter registration. Don't go stand in the longer than normal line to vote. Then prove they they're enrolled. They have to do all that. Their phone's probably dead by that point because um, they could show it from their phone. So that that's the the plan now. So what does that mean? So thousands of students, as I mentioned, will have to go do that. And what I, you know, having lived downtown, um, represented these student wards, partially student wards on the county board for years, and having been an out-of-state student coming to UW, I can tell you that what, what most out-of-state students do is they identify with their hometown. They identify with Minnesota, Illinois, New York, wherever. But when it comes close to the election and it starts to get close and they're being urged to vote, they decide, well, actually, I do want to vote. And it's, I live here. And that's why we see the surge in voting, right? I'm very concerned about how this getting a second ID will play into that process. I think everyone here understands what I mean. Now, it doesn't just affect out-of-state students, you might say, well, you know, they might, maybe they have a passport. Maybe they can go between classes and get an ID. Maybe they, uh, maybe they should just vote in Edina. You know, maybe they should vote in Minnesota. Why are they voting here? All these things. Of course, they have a right to vote here, that they live here. But, I, but I'm, what I'm actually more concerned about is the effect on everybody else. So let's say 500 students get in line to vote, and they decide they're going to vote provisionally. And they'll get their ID because the cam campaigns told them to vote provisionally. That will shut down the polling places. But there's two pages on how to fill out a provisional ballot. Provisional ballot is one where you cast the ballot, but if you don't come back and provide the ID or what, whatever you need to prove who you are, they tear it up. So we have to be able to pull it back out. Okay? So the ballot goes in one of these. It has to be filled out by two people. You have to sign your name, do all this stuff. It's a long list. It takes five to ten minutes per voter. So add, add that on top. Even if just 20, 30, 40 people at one point place start doing that, it's going to be uh, a serious problem. So there are a lot of problems uh, with the voter ID law as far as implementing it and making sure everybody can vote. And I kind of glossed over some other major issues here as far as um, uh, folks who don't have driver's licenses because they rely on the bus system. I don't want to gloss that over because I've been working hard on trying to figure out a good way to contact them and, and reach out to them. But this one is really easy. The chancellor just needs to say there will be a two-year expiration date on those IDs. Uh, Green Bay did it, and they said that the cost was negligible. My understanding is the chancellor is going to come back and say this costs hundreds and hundreds of thousands of dollars to do. It doesn't. So I'm here to ask your help to get this changed because it doesn't just affect out-of-state students, uh, it will affect everybody. And I, I don't want to, I'm worried about that election night when everyone's like, where are the results? Why don't we have the results? What's going on? Well, I told you right here, right now, what was going to happen. Thanks. Now, Ingrid Roth, Vice President of the League of Women Voters of Dane County, introduces the next speaker. Thanks, Scott. It's my pleasure to introduce our next speaker, Will Jones. Will is a professor of history at the UW, where he studies 20th century American history with a particular emphasis on race, class, and work. And he's the author of two books, The Tribe of Black Ulysses, African-American Lumber Workers in the Jim Crow South, 
and the March on Washington Jobs, Freedom, and the Forgotten History of Civil Rights, a book which I can commend very highly to you. But perhaps more germane to tonight's uh, gathering, Will is on the executive committee of the NAACP of Dane County, and he's also the co-chair of the Dane County Voter ID Coalition, which was founded by the League and the NAACP. Um, good evening. Mary and, and Scott have, I, I think, properly emphasized how complicated this, uh, this law is. And um, I'll say what neither of them have, have said, which is that this is purposeful. And it's, it's part of um, what I think is fair to say is the broadest, uh, the biggest threat to democratic participation that we've seen in this country in over a century. Um, it's been building for a long time, but I think was really unleashed since the uh, elections of 2010, uh, which we saw a wave of laws that were passed mostly in 2011 uh, and 2012. There were not just voter ID laws, there were restrictions on voter registration, cutting back early in absentee voting, um, and redistricting, which was a way of privileging one voter over another. Um, in Wisconsin, for example, <clears throat> uh, in 2012, uh, Democrats won uh, statewide 174,000 more votes than Republicans, and still Republicans gained control of both houses of our legislature. Um, the, the voter ID laws, I think, are particularly pernicious and complicated. Um, 34 states passed uh, some version of voter ID laws uh, since 20 2011. And the, the strictest were in eight states, which include Wisconsin. Um, as Ingrid mentioned, my day job is as a historian. And, and I think in, in some ways I want to sort of point to what I think are very clear parallels with the last major wave of disfranchisement that we saw in the late, 20, the late 19th century. Uh, in this country. One similarity that Scott mentioned is the disproportionate impact that these laws have had on non-white voters. Um, in Wisconsin, it's estimated that 15% of black voters uh, do not have a proper ID. And these are, these are African Americans who are registered to vote, currently registered to vote. Uh, that compares to about 5% of whites. Um, other laws have had a similar impact nationally. Um, nearly one quarter of African Americans uh, in recent elections have cast early ballots, so using early voting uh, opportunities. That compares to about 13% of whites. So we see that these laws, um, in many ways, like the, the, the 19th century, the late 19th century wave of disfranchisement, um, these laws are on their surface racially neutral. Um, of course, all of these laws then and now were passed uh, to conform to the 15th Amendment, which makes it illegal to pass a law that disfranchises people because of their race. Um, but they have a very profound racial uh, impact. And as Scott pointed out, uh, this is true not just of non-white voters, but of students, of seniors, um, homeless people, the unemployed, um, the, the ways in which these laws um, so affect particular pockets of our population, I think is really critical for understanding them. 
But also, I think it's important to keep in mind that these disparities are only part of the story. Uh, and like the last wave of disfranchisement, this threatens to impose a profoundly undemocratic political system that will really affect all of us, regardless of our race, uh, our economic status, our age. Um, and, and, the, and I think it has really wide-ranging implications. Um, in the previous wave of disfranchisement, uh, Southern Democrats, who were the primary beneficiaries of the Jim Crow system that arose out of this disfranchisement, were the people who took advantage of um, the elimination, the almost complete elimination of African Americans from voting. But these were also the people who blocked national legislation, uh, the, the amendment giving the women the right to vote. Um, faced its biggest opposition uh, from Southern Democrats. And if you look actually at the states that were the last ones to ratify the 19th Amendment, they were also the, the Jim Crow states. Um, these were the same, this was the same political bloc that, um, that weakened laws giving workers the right to, to form unions uh, and protections from unsafe working conditions and a range of protections that uh, protecting people from poverty and insecurity. So I think it's really important to think of this in, the, in this historical context. And it's, a, I think, a bleak context, but one that I think should give us all a pause. I think it's also why a broad coalition of groups have emerged to oppose these efforts and to ensure that all citizens have the right to vote and that those votes count as much as the votes that are cast by other citizens. And I think the NAACP and the League of Women Voters, uh, both here and nationally, have really been on the forefront of this effort. Um, along with other groups, the ACLU, I think, has played a really important role um, in pushing this effort on really three levels. And I want to talk about those and really try to end by encouraging you uh, to get involved in these. Um, <clears throat> at the federal level, this, uh, this effort to push back has come mostly through the courts uh, and most recently focused, I think, squarely on Congress. Um, a series of lawsuits have challenged these state laws, uh, the voter ID laws, the redistricting, um, the, 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 the impositions on registration. Um, the Supreme Court, some of you know, rejected a Wisconsin challenge last year, uh, but there are cases progressing on laws in North Carolina uh, and Texas that I think could have important implications for us here in Wisconsin. Uh, the federal courts are also uh, considering an important challenge to the redistricting in Wisconsin that, again, you know, could have important implications. Um, perhaps most important, I think this effort at the federal level has started to focus uh, on passing uh, a law in Congress restoring the Voting Rights Act of 1965. Um, this was the central uh, so one of the central victories of the civil rights movement of the 1960s uh, and really brought to an end that, that first period of disfranchisement that I referred to in, in my opening. Uh, in 2013, the U.S. Supreme Court struck down a really key provision uh, of this law, um, but in striking it down, called on Congress to uh, bring it up to date, to reissue uh, rules that can um, that would make that law uh, enforceable again. Um, so this was a step, uh, an important setback, uh, but also an opportunity, and an opportunity, I think, actually to update what's known as the pre-clearance system of the 
um, the Voting Rights Act. This is essentially rules that whenever a state changes its voting rules, it has to get approval uh, at the federal level. Um, and this, under the Voting Rights Act of 1965, uh, included states with a, with a history of disfranchisement, which were mostly southern states. Um, so for example, Wisconsin was not included in that preclearance ruling. Um, so this is actually an opportunity uh, and there's a, there's, a, there's a law, there's a bill before both houses, both Senate and Congress, that would actually update those rulings to, uh, to use um, the a new standard, which is uh, states that have um, had voting rights violations in the more recent past. So in a sense, this is an opportunity to, um, to update that. Of course, it's an opportunity that relies on Congress actually passing a law. <laughs> um, so this is, I think, at the federal level, a really important set of, of developments that we need to be involved in uh, and push for. The NAACP has sought to draw attention to this nationally. Um, in the past uh, month, uh, we, we organized what was called the Journey for Justice, which was a 1,000-mile a, a march from Selma, Alabama, to Washington, D.C., um, aimed at a number of initiatives, including voting rights. The other major initiatives were uh, pushing for quality education, criminal justice reform, uh, and jobs with a living wage. Um, there were several similar efforts at the local level. Um, so last month, the League of Women Voters, the, uh, Wisconsin Faith Voices, a number of other groups joined the state conference of NAACP branches in rallying at the state capitol to support voting rights uh, in coalition with this broader uh, national journey for justice. And finally, I want to talk about the efforts at the local level, which I think are the ones that are most sort of relevant uh, and encourage you uh, to get involved in that. And that's a, a coalition that, uh, that the NAACP of Dane County and the Daney County chapter of the League of Women Voters has built around the effort to uh, prepare for the implementation of the voter ID law. So um, our effort is uh, in anticipation of this law um, being in effect uh, in the spring elections. And, and we're really doing this around three uh, main initiatives. We, in addition to the League of Women Voters and the NAACP, we brought in a number of neighborhood groups, the South Central Federation of Labor, uh, moved to amend a number of groups that are trying to put together a grassroots effort to, in a sense, prepare for this law. And I really encourage you to support that. Um, so the three main initiatives that we've done uh, are uh, implementing information and education around voter ID into ongoing voter, voter registration uh, efforts that, that all of the involved groups have been involved in uh, before this. A lot of other groups have been involved in voter registration, but I think part of what's key about this is that when we're registering people to vote, we need to inform them about the voter ID law. Um, perhaps even more importantly, we need to encourage them to talk to their family members, people in their community uh, about these laws. Um, it, often, I think that we come into contact with people through voter registration efforts who are kind of up to date on the laws and um, often are prepared. They may have a, um, the, a proper ID, they might have a driver's license. Um, but we need to, I think, right now, start sending the word out that these changes have come down 
these are incredibly complicated new rules, and we need to prepare ourselves to, uh, to handle them, but we also need to get people uh, aware of this. And, and again, I think there's, it's really never too early to start this. We need to do this immediately. Um, in a sense, we need to just sort of set, generate a buzz about what's going on and how people can, end, can prepare for those elections. Um, so, so part of what we've been doing is tabling the kind of routine voter registration work that I think a lot of us have been involved in over the years, but, but doing that with the added element of talking about the voter ID uh, law. Another part of this initiative uh, has been to gather data about who, uh, who has an ID, uh, who does not have an ID, who's, who's registered to vote and may not have an ID. And this is part of what Scott was talking about. That's also very complicated in trying to figure out. It, it essentially is gathering databases and comparing uh, databases. So we've been working on that um, and trying to use that to put together uh, lists of people that we want to contact, either through door-to-door -door canvassing, uh, through mailings, through uh, calling people on the phone, um, this, is, this is a process, again, that's very complicated that we're just starting uh, to figure out. The, the final element of this initiative that the coalition has been working on is helping people get IDs, right? So if, if we find somebody who does not have the proper ID, um, part of what we can do is say, hey, go get a driver's license, go, go get a, a state ID. Um, but what if they do not have a vehicle? Uh, what if they don't have the proper identification to actually get an ID? Um, what if they don't have uh, the resources to, to put this together? Uh, and we've, put up, we've started to put together uh, a system of providing rides to uh, the DMV. Uh, so the Urban League uh, of Dane County uh, of Greater Madison and the YWCA uh, have both uh, volunteered resources to provide rides for people to uh, actually get to the to the DMV. Um, Scott has also committed to to helping with this out, helping out with this. Um, our focus at this point is on uh, populations that are most likely to not have those IDs. So uh, we've been working with uh, with job fairs, uh, social service agencies that work with the unemployed and the homeless. Uh, again, sort of a target audience, but I think it's likely that there's people uh, in a broad range of backgrounds who need this type of assistance. So I've laid out some of what we're working on, and it's obviously a huge job. And as I said at the beginning, this, that's by design. This is, this is designed to keep people from voting. Um, and I think our job is really uh, to ensure that that doesn't happen, or at least to minimize uh, the impact of this law. So I really encourage you uh, to get involved in this. Um, I think this is something actually that we shouldn't have to do, right? I mean, I think our, we would hope that our government would encourage people to participate in the democratic process, not limit their ability to do so. Uh, but unfortunately, I think this is something that we need to kind of step up to the plate uh, and do. Um, so I'd encourage you to get involved in our coalition. Um, I think getting involved through the league uh, or through the NAACP um, is another way that you can tap into this effort. But it's something, it's a huge job, and, and we need uh, your support. So thank you very much, and I appreciate your time. Now a discussion with the audience. How is it possible to help a person get a birth certificate?
that seems to be the catch, and there must be a complicated process for that. What about the people who um, are not, uh, don't have driver's licenses and have to go about getting a birth certificate in order to get an ID? There is, you may know that there is a petition process at the DMV for someone who does not have all of those, those documents in those four areas. And you, there's a form that you complete um, and the DMV, uh, if, if you don't have access to all of the necessary documents and there's a cost associated with it, you can petition the DMV to uh, obtain that information uh, for you, on your behalf, from, uh, a, for example, a source in a different state. And um, that would be one way that someone can um, uh, get an ID, even if they don't have their birth certificate. The Milwaukee League of Women Voters contacted the Department of Motor Vehicles about how things were going. And the last report I saw said about 820 people had applied and over 800 had gotten IDs. So that is about a 2% non-success rate at this point. The trouble is only 800 people have applied. And if 200,000 apply next October, it's not going to work. Do we know what the average wait time is at the DMV office to be able to get this ID process? And I say this because referencing Milwaukee, um, I took an elderly person in who lost her state ID. We went in purposely into the DMV office on a very non-busy day and start to finish, and remember she just lost it, so they should have had a picture in the file. We were in there an hour and a half. I, I believe that the DMV says that the average waiting time is 20 minutes, uh, but that might be averaged over everyone's experiences, not necessarily someone who has a complicated case. I don't know if anyone else has. And that might just be the waiting time rather than the total time, you know. Is the DMV office the only place you can get a, a voter ID? Yes. But there are, other, there are other documents that you can use, for example, a passport or a military ID card and so forth. Uh, the most typical forms of ID that people use are a driver's license or a state ID. Could you speak to the uh, absentee voter um, and when it is allowed and so forth? Um, if you are voting absentee, not permanent absentee, but just absentee because you're on vacation, then you need to submit a copy of your voter photo ID. However, if you identify as someone who wants to, uh, uh, needs a permanent absentee ballot, then you are exempt from uh, needing to provide a, a photo ID. I will say, in an unusual twist, uh, if I were to turn in an, a picture of my driver's license and were with the city clerk, that would work for the next 50 years for me. Never has to be renewed. It doesn't expire under this law. Professor, have you identified student groups at the campus that will help in this effort? Um, 
I've actually, because I'm a professor, been a little bit reluctant to go and pressure student groups to do this. Um, uh, but <laughs> but the, these, the ASM, the Associated Students of Madison, has historically been involved in this. I think part of the problem has been, you know, they're just starting up there, you know, so they've all been away for the summer and they're just coming back. And so, so for example, a few weeks ago, the, um, the, the, the university actually turned responsibility for uh, informing the students about this new law over to the ASM, which wasn't there all summer, right? So they were just, I don't know if they've updated this, but a few weeks ago there was basically the old uh, information from last year with a contact information that was somebody who probably had graduated. Um, so there, there are student groups that are involved in this. Um, there are, the, the Teaching Assistance Association has also been working on this, but again, um, this is something that's just starting to get going. You said that uh, the university has turned this effort over to the student organization to inform the students of the law? Are they giving them resources to do so as well? Because, I, you know, I'd be concerned. I'm concerned. That, uh, uh, what do we have? 50,000 students on campus? And you're going to turn this over to an auxiliary on the campus to do this kind of work, this serious work? I, I hope that uh, Chancellor Blank is giving them some resources to do this work. Well, I think Scott was right to ask, ask all of you to contact the chancellor. <laughs> yeah, and, and the league should take a position, I would hope. Any, um, the, the other part of it is, um, yeah, it, need, it needs an organized effort for students. For example, you know, making sure that they have, you know, what I would want to do is send out a reminder email to all the students the day before the election, here's your proof of enrollment or here's the link to your wisc.edu link for enrollment so when you're in line these are the steps to show poll workers that you're enrolled i mean things like and there's a lot of other things like that but there should be a plan i guarantee you there's well from my what i've gotten there is no plan i think in terms of who to contact in addition to the chancellor i think the dean of students Lori burkwam who is would be very sympathetic to this i think um but but may need a nudge from people. So. How do you envision using social media to generate the buzz that you were talking about related to this? Well, I'll just start. You know, last time this came about, I, I did um, produce some videos. Uh, actually, my Chad Vader video got like 30,000 hits, which is blew away the other voting videos that were out there. Um, and, uh, you know, so we're, we're going to push that out again. We have some other materials like that. We can try to operate on multiple levels. I mean, part of it is, you know, you, you, you need to do, you know, you, you can't communicate the same way to everybody anymore. It doesn't work that way anymore. So um, we're going to try to operate on multiple levels. But one of the things that I've sort of taken away from this, too, is it's important for everyone to kind of know the basics. But the, but the money is better spent contacting the person without an ID not telling all of you guys who have an ID. You know what I'm saying? So that's, that, you may not hear some things later because you're not the audience. I am confused about the university ID process in uh, UW-Madison. Are you saying that the cards that they get, like credit cards or whatever they call, 
now have an expiration of five years, they would have to reissue all those cards to make it two years? Is that how it works? That's a great question. So, um, you know, it depends on how you look at this. Uh, they could begin the process of having all of their IDs conform. If you wanted to make sure that everyone could vote next November, you would probably reissue all of them, 45,000, 40, more than that, because the faculty all have the same IDs. So you'd have to, it would go up. Um, or you could just start the process. These, you know, freshman incoming has this two-year expiration date, and then at least within a couple of cycles. So um, the, the expiration date has to be within two years, and it has to be on the ID, and that's not the current plan. It's so easy to say something wrong about this. It's so complicated. I, I'm trying to be careful. I think part of the issue with the university is that they currently issue a student ID when you enroll, and it lasts throughout. For most students, it lasts throughout their, their career at the university. So this would, it would create a process of needing to renew them every two years, which you know, is an expense. I don't know what the expense is. But. Uh, getting back to the student groups, Last year, I was one of the people who did work with, with the um, ASM when they did voter registration, and they did a really good job. Now, I know that there's turnover, so I don't know if the next group will do as well, but they were very well organized, and, and they, had, they, of course, would set up the tabling and, and ask volunteers to help out, which, which I was one of the people who did, but they did a really nice job. Yeah, they were everywhere on Election Day trying to, you know, and before that, too, so, you know, they have been strong. But you're, not, you're right, it, go, it comes and goes. It's who's there. We all know we're all part of organizations. It changes. Hi, I am a student at the university, and it is definitely cumbersome. Most students are completely unaware that there is a voter ID law, and there hasn't been a big campus push, but I know it doesn't cost very much to purchase the university list. So hopefully student orgs do a good job of buying that and reaching out to people. And we can definitely go on to talk about student Things, but I was curious, Professor, about you said there's a law coming up in Congress that would um, create a new list for clearance under the Voting Rights Act. What is that called, and how could we be active in helping get that passed? Mm, um, count on students to give me the hard question. <laughs> he didn't know there was going to be a test I didn't on know this. <laughs> <laughs> Just so I understand, if I do not have a voter ID that's valid, then I must go to DMV to get one. Is that correct? Well, well that's, the, that, that's probably the, the best way to go about it. But you could go to the clerk of courts and get a passport. That You could audit classes and have a UW ID if it were to conform and you went to Green, Green Bay. Went to UW Green Bay or Superior or Edgewood okay, or Madison College. Okay, but there are other IDs that work. But the DMV is the, you can get either an ID uh, card or a driver's I, I license. I'm just trying to identify how do I get an ID? DMV does it. Why not send DMV out to affected populations? Other states do that. The state does not. Uh, well, no, we do not. Why don't we? Is there a way to get it done? Well, I, you know, I think that, that that goes back to, you know, the, the professor's analysis of the situation is that if, if this were about um, fear of voter fraud, 
then there'd be a lot of energy being um, put on making sure the DMV hours are open, that, that they have mobile ID vans, that maybe other kinds of IDs could be accepted, uh, you know, allowing municipalities to issue IDs. I know the county would. I guarantee you the county would. We're not allowed to. Um, there, there were ways that you could, you could change this law or have written this law to uh, accomplish the goal of minimizing voter fraud um, if that were the actual goal. So the, the law is the voting, the voter rights, voting rights amendment act. I hope that we will uh, all try to call the chancellor because Green Bay, the University of Green Bay can conform in Madison, Wisconsin at the top of the chart for the system and we can't help people get IDs that, that uh, is painless for students to get. There's something wrong with that picture. I have a question about technical colleges. Around the state, there are a lot of technical colleges and um, I assume that their IDs qualify as well as a university ID. And then when you said that a person can audit and get an ID, um, what's the process for signing up to audit a course? I know that if we're over 62, we can, with the professor's permission, sit in on a course, but um, what about a 45-year-old who doesn't have a driver's license and no birth certificate? Can they go and audit a class in a technical college and get an ID? All right, well, that got complicated at the end there. I, um, I will say, that's a great question. I don't know. I know that at any accredited university, so private college, as long as you're, you're accredited in the state, um, then you issue an ID that fit those criteria of having a photo, and I put that on the list, then those are legal. So I know that Madison College, for example, um, their IDs will work. I, I don't have a comprehensive list of, of other technical colleges like Blackhawk, but they can if they want to. It's the same, same process. I don't know about auditing, and I, I, just, I just know that if you are issued an ID, and maybe there's some people here who audit, and if you have a UW ID or not, you know, I think they can code it so you don't get to do everything. Um, take up the surf and then, you know, use the recreation facilities. But I think as long as you have an ID but that conforms to the law, but the problem with UW-Madison is they're not conforming with the law, so it wouldn't really do you any good. On page five of the document, it says the university or college ID must be accompanied by a separate document such as a tuition fee receipt, enrollment verification letter, or class schedule provides enrollment to be valid for voting. So it doesn't sound like auditing counts. You, well, you, you have to prove that you um, are enrolled. So that's a gray area. I mean, do you have to be enrolled to audit? Okay, so then that wouldn't, auditing wouldn't work. That, you could take a class, and, and I think they want to get paid is kind of where that's at, um, which I understand. But uh, yeah, you don't, you, you can be, um, as, as long as you, you can prove that you're enrolled. They used to allow those lists, those housing lists, but I think there was some ruling that that was a breach of confidentiality or something like that, so that's not available. Pardon me? They don't show citizenship. Oh, they don't show citizenship, yeah. I know that this is Dane County, yes, indeed. And people are talking about what happens in Milwaukee County. What concerns me is I moved here about a year and a half ago from Sheboygan County, and I know that's not 
your concern, but we're all concerned with everything these days in Wisconsin and what's happening to voting rights. And there's, there's northern counties where there isn't even a DMV. Mm -hmm. I mean, and so we need to be aware of how complicated this is for lots of people um, in less populous areas. And these are the people who typically feel that Madison and Milwaukee are out to get them anyway. And so, and so anything that through statewide organizations that we can do to help people in the outlying areas, in small towns and rural communities to get this going, it would be a good thing. I agree with that. I, you know, I think with the County Clerks Association, you know, all the county clerks meet, um, you know, a couple times a year and talk about these issues. And, you know, one of the reasons why we like this bill that's going to come forward that has Wisconsin join Eric is that there would be statewide mailings that went out to everyone telling them how to register to vote. When they move, it would follow them and it, and it would be consistent statewide. And I think, uh, you know, that's something we're looking forward to because it's really, it can change. You cross borders and uh, things are not the same. Okay, um, I'm Karen McKim with the Wisconsin Election Integrity Action Team. And for those of you who have pens and paper and out, ready to go, the phone number for UW Chancellor is 262-9946. That's 262-9946, UW Chancellor. The phone number for the Dean of Students is 263-5700. That's 263-5700. So Scott, what do you see happening with the county during 2016 in terms of voter ID? Do you, do you see any initiatives coming up at the county level? The first step is to try to get a decent list of people who don't have IDs. That's one of the goals that I have. And I, there's some money in my budget for outreach on voter ID. And how to use that is not clear. If I can, right now the DMV wants, I think, a dollar or two dollars a record. Think about that. And then, then GAB gets the data, but they don't have the actual DMV database. So they, all they can do is check with DMV but they don't have the database. They can't run a report. And DMV has not been terribly helpful. I mean, I, they, it's not their job. They're not a voting agency. So, But uh, having that list would be really important. And I'm hoping maybe that Eric can be part of a solution. So I don't want to spend what little money I have there if I have another solution to that. So that would be first. You know, partnering with folks on rides to the DMV to get IDs would be some, another good use of some money. I like to think about, you know, my, my hat as having been county board chair, there's a lot of reasons you should have an ID that have nothing to do with voting. Um, it's hard to get a job without an ID. Um, so this is, you know, this has to do with, you know, that person who doesn't have an ID. Maybe they're a senior, and that's one reason. But if you're younger, uh, you should have an ID. So reframing this as you should have an ID for you know, job security for, you know, all the other things that you need in your life and voting is one of those. Might be another way of dealing with this problem. So, uh, you know, there are, for example, vans that take people to job sites. Well, what are they doing in the middle of the day? Can you make appointments to do DMV then? 
But, you know, there's a lot of triage that needs to happen as well. You can't just pick somebody up and start heading down to the DMV and find out what do they have on them. Maybe they have an ID that works. So, the, you know, GAB, and we're still calling it that for now, has a, has a hotline that you can use to have these questions answered. So that would be something to help maybe we can work on disseminating where they can work with someone to say, well, maybe you do have an ID that works. But um, right now we don't have good data. It's just re really you can't do anything without knowing who your audience is. Who, where would I go? We could try start doing doors on the south side or do something like that, but you're really just wandering around with a blindfold. Well, you really self-identify as needing a permanent absentee ballot. For whatever reason you feel that you um, will not be able to get to the polls on a consistent, regular basis, for whatever reason, you can self-identify. And there's a, in the city of Madison, there's a very simple form that you complete and submit. Um, well, you, you're supposed to be indefinitely confined. But, I mean, in th you ha but indefinitely confined basically means you might have difficulty at some point getting to your polling place. I mean, maybe it could be icy in February, and that might be hard for you. You just self-identify as being indefinitely confined. My um, nephew-in-law, before the election where we thought voter ID was going to be in, um, he's a PhD student here, and um, he went through all the DMV stuff, all everything he could find, legal women voter, I don't know what he went through, picked up everything he could possibly do to take to the DMV to get an ID, um, including his valid Illinois driver's license. So that would be a big step if out-of-state driver's license with pictures could be considered ID. They should be, but, you know, they're not. So he took all of that. He had to get on the bus. He didn't have a car. It took him long. So he gets over there, and it wasn't enough yet. If a PhD student can't evaluate what to take, we're, you know, going to have a lot of trouble taking people to the polls. And I, among many here, I'm sure would be happy to be drivers, but we're going to get over there and spend an hour or two and still not have the right thing. So they told him there wasn't enough time before the election to go through Illinois, and they said you should go to Illinois and get your birth certificate uh, in person. So there's a trip for him. Along with students, next September, they're all going to have, they may have an ID, but they're all going to have new addresses, and they don't have any proof of where they live. So it's, you know, it's really discouraging. I want to say that I have been to the DMV regularly, mostly with homeless folks, and an hour and a half would be on the long side for the Madison DMV. Occasionally, we haven't been able to get it to work, but the DMV got handed a whole new can of worms when the state Supreme Court wrote the ruling that this law was fine because the DMV would help people. And the DMV, as, as I noted, has, has helped 800 plus people, because that was, I think, a July number. I haven't seen the new one. And you no longer have to get your own birth certificate. You have to bring in stuff to attempt to prove you're you, and then the DOT contacts Illinois, and they don't get a copy of your birth certificate. They get a hold of some clerk who says, yes, we have a certificate like that. They put a check mark in a box, and they will get you your ID. So. Yes, I would love the DMV to be out in mobile vehicles driving around. Nobody's given them the money to do that. And 
from the folks I've talked to, I've just found a woman who needs an ID and doesn't have a birth certificate, and I'm hoping to be able to follow her through the process so I get to see firsthand how challenging this is. But the DMV is doing the best they can with what they've got, and they didn't get any more money to be calling up Puerto Rico and trying to figure out whether, you know, Jose Lopez was born on the 4th of November in 1972. Before that, the League actually got a $5,000 grant from the EVU Foundation to help people pay for IDs. And I, I could sit here and tell horror stories all night of people trying to get a hold of IDs. Young people who were born in Okinawa to service members older gentleman who thought he was born in Chicago, but actually he moved there as a baby with his parents and didn't know what state he'd been born in. Uh, this is just quick. Are we going to get this in Spanish and Hmong? We, I have, um, there are Spanish and Hmong brochures on the county website, so okay. we can print those too. I will say um, in Dane County and in Milwaukee County, uh, you can get a free birth certificate from the Register of Deeds for the purposes of voting. If you were born in Dana, yeah, you have to be born. In, <laughs> you have to be born there. It's true. This was a wonderful, informative panel, and I think that they deserve our appreciation. You've just listened to a panel discussion on voter ID, sponsored by the League of Women Voters of Dane County. The panelists are Marion Matthews, Special Registration Deputy with the League, Scott McDonald, Dane County Clerk, and Will Jones with the NAACP Dane County Executive Committee and co-chair of the Dane County Coalition on Voter Photo ID. The talk took place on October 7, 2015 at the Capital Lakes Retirement Center in Madison. There are handouts on the League's website about this talk at lwvdanecounty.org. And there you can find out what else the League is up to at lwvdanecounty.org. The views expressed here are those of the speakers, and not necessarily those of the League of Women Voters of Dane County. Permission to rebroadcast this podcast is granted if credit is given to the League of Women Voters of Dane County, and any editing does not alter the speaker's meaning. This talk was produced by Mind's Eye Audio in Madison.